Hey, good morning. Um, before I start, I should have to tell you guys what I just did at my seat. I just sat on my coffee cup and knocked it over on the whole row behind me. And I just needed you to know that because I was laughing pretty hard and I'm so sorry. It wasn't my kids. It was literally me. All right. So my name is Rachel. Um, I am Corey's wife, uh, for those of you who are new here. And um, yeah, you can just call me Rachel. Some people call me First Lady. Uh, Rev, Rev calls me First Lady. Um, but I'm so excited to be closing out this series. Right now we're in the middle of a series called Devoted, where um, we're taking a really close look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, and to prayer. And this is our final week in this series. And before we get into our topic for today, I want to talk about this word, devoted. This word devoted, what does it mean to be devoted? It's summer, so odds are almost every person here has either been to a wedding or seen pictures of a wedding, or there's like 19 photographers in this room, so someone in here has probably shot a wedding. And so there's weddings everywhere, because it's summer, it's wedding season in Northeast Ohio. Maybe that's across the world, I don't know. One of you photographers can probably speak to if that's everywhere. But what does it mean to be devoted? When we see these weddings, we see people devoting their lives. We hear these beautiful vows that are like broken within three days. Not necessarily extremely, but when we talk about like, I'm going to love you always, it's like, I'm probably going to wake up mad at you on Tuesday. Like that's probably going to happen. But what does it mean to be devoted and to, and to love people, to devote your lives through those hard times, through those hard seasons? This word devoted, it means love, loyalty, enthusiasm for a person, for an activity, or for a cause. Love, loyalty, and enthusiasm for a person, activity, or a cause. If you have been around the Hunka House ever in the fall, or if you've been around this church for even just a month, you know that our household is devoted to football. It's like Corey has like a quota of like, I have to use at least one football analogy a month in my sermon or something. Or like across the summer, he's just counting down the days during baseball season to get to football season. In my life, before I married Corey Hanka, um, football was just a filler until basketball season came. I love basketball season. I grew up in a basketball family. I played cheerleading. I didn't play basketball. But in my house, we looked forward to basketball season. But when I married Corey, my options were learn to enjoy football or hate every Sunday and Monday and now Thursday until football season ends. That's pretty much what it was like. And so, uh, so when we first got married, um, my idea as a new wife was what is something that I can do um, to join in on something Corey loves because he's probably not going to join in on like cheerleading. He's probably not going to start watching gymnastics meets. He's probably not going to start snowboarding with me. He's not going to do any of these things. He hates the cold. He's not going to go to the beach. Like I just know him. He, he would not even enjoy that. So in my mind, we got married in September, September 9th, 2012. 
And so my bright idea was we're going to have football Sundays. My gift to him is going to be the NFL Sunday ticket. That's what I'm going to get him. And, and I'm going to start looking up recipes for just like cool football food. And, and so, I, so I tell him this and I'm like, hey, I got you the Sunday ticket. Happy wedding. Um, every Sunday, you can invite over whoever you want. I love to cook. I'll cook for you guys. And so some of you guys who come to family dinner are like, oh, that was the birth of family dinner. You're right, it was. And so, so this is what happens every Sunday in the first year of our marriage. And it was really fun. I started to look forward to Sundays. I started learning things about some of these players. I started, I started understanding that if the Cowboys lost, I should just not talk to Corey. I eventually learned that if the Cowboys are playing the Packers, Deshaun and Corey will never be in the same house again. I watched one of them jump on a table at one point. Like, it just can't happen. So this, so this is year one of our marriage. So year two, our second anniversary rolls around and he's like, hey, I renewed the Sunday ticket. I'm like, whoa, that was, was that an annual gift? Like, what do I get? Like, I, th I thought that was last year. So then, little did I know that in this first year of our marriage, I set the trend for eternity because seven years later, we still have the Sunday ticket. Everyone still gathers every Sunday during football season. It's to the point where when people gather after football season, I have no idea how I'm entertaining them because that's what I've learned that we do. And then he forms this, this, this fantasy football league that you guys have heard him talk about. I had no idea that fantasy football was so intense. So he tells me, we're gonna host the draft and I'm the commissioner. And I'm like, I don't even know what you just said. And so the first year that it's at our house, he's like got, got a computer screen up on our TV. He stands up in front of anyone, everyone and he's like, the commissioner is ready to begin. I'm like, did you just do that? Are you kidding me? This is so intense. And so as this league goes on and on and on, I learned that draft day is intense. Like some of his friends in this, in this league moved away and they drive in from other states for draft day. Like Garrett wasn't gonna be here one year and he FaceTimed in all day for draft day. This is insane. I have never seen something like this in my life. But do you know what has happened to me? I'm so excited for football season. Our dog is named Dak after the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. He informed me that if we had another child, it was gonna be named Zeke. Like that's who I've become. I went along with these things. I'm like, Zeke is a great name. That sounds awesome. I don't wanna have another kid, but if we did, I'm down, I'm in. I also hope these players never get traded because we can't give away our dog and we also can't change its name. But that's what has happened because that is devotion. That's devotion. When you are devoted to something, no matter what it is, your enthusiasm draws people in. Your excitement for something looks like insanity to people on the outside who don't understand it. When you are devoted to something, it consumes your life. It becomes something that you can't stop talking about. It becomes something that you're so excited about. It becomes something that you want to bring everybody else into because you want them to have this same experience that you have. So, 
as we're talking about being devoted, as we're in this series, devoted, when we conclude it today, what would it look like to carry that kind of enthusiasm that makes someone who could not possibly have cared less about football previously so excited to join in? What would it look like if we were devoted to prayer in the same way? What would it look like if we were devoted to prayer the way that their brotherhood league is devoted to fantasy football, the way that some of you guys are devoted to the Cleveland Browns? What would it look like? What would it look like if that's what happened? So today, as we conclude this series, we're going to look at devoted to prayer. Now, if you look in Scripture, if you look in Scripture, you see, going back to the Old Testament, that there's all these one-liners. There's all these one-line instances where you can pick up little snippets of what it should look like to pray. And all these little snippets of what it would look like to be a community who prays. If you look in the book of Daniel, you can see them practiced. You can see what Daniel did and what happened to him when he was living a life so devoted to prayer. And today what we're going to look at is some of the things that Jesus did as we dive into our first, our first point today. But as we approach this, as we approach this, I want to look at one specific thing that Jesus said before we dive in. When Jesus was talking about prayer, he, didn't, he actually didn't talk about it a lot. He just did it. And there's one instance where he teaches us how to pray. But before he teaches us how to pray, he uses a very specific word. And that's the posture that we're going to take today. Jesus doesn't say, if you pray, pray like this. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. When you pray, not if. Prayer is not an option. Prayer is not something that we get to decide if we want to do or don't want to do. Jesus says, when you pray. And so as we get into this word this morning, I just want you to know that we are looking at this from the mindset of when we pray, not if we pray. Because we should be a praying church. We should be a praying people. And so as we're looking at this, let's take that attitude in. When we pray, point one, pray individually. First thing, pray individually. I honestly could not, uh, could not pick out one instance. And so we're going to run down a list right now. I'm just going to read them. Don't worry about pulling out your Bible. They're not going to be up on the screen. I just want you to focus and listen. This is Mark 1.35 after Jesus had been healing people all day. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Luke 5, verse 15 and 16, after healing a leper. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and the vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Luke 6, verse 12, before choosing his disciples, one day soon after Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of the disciples, and he chose 12 of them to be apostles. Matthew 14, when Jesus grieves the death of John the Baptist, as soon as he hears the news, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. 
Matthew 14, after feeding the 5,000 and right before walking on water. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell and he was there alone. Luke chapter nine, before confirming his identity, one day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him and he asked them, who do people say that I am? Matthew 15, after casting out demons, Jesus returned to the Sea of Galilee and climbed a hill and sat down. Luke 11, before teaching people how to pray, once Jesus was in a certain place praying, after he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Mark 14, before going to the cross, they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. This isn't even every instance. This isn't even every time that he did it. We didn't even get into the Gospel of John. We just looked at the Synoptic Gospels. We just looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Every time, Jesus, Jesus, God in human form, living, breathing, walking, and praying among us. Every time he was about to do something big or he just did something big, he stepped away from the chaos surrounding him and he stepped away from life to just be alone and talk with God. He left his followers to, to pray in seclusion. He rested and went to be alone. And do you know what he never said? When people came and found him when he was alone, do you know what he never said? He never said, hey, I'm sorry, I just needed a minute. He never apologized. He never apologized for taking time to be alone and pray because he knew how deeply important that was. I don't know if you're an introvert, I'm an introvert. Sometimes I feel like I need to apologize for being alone. Like when somebody sends you an invitation, I don't know, has anybody else ever do this? Like, hey, sorry, I'm just really tired and I'm not gonna do anything today. Why do we apologize for that? Jesus got tired and walked away. It said he left everyone. And even when he was with them all in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he went to the cross, right before the veil was gonna be split in two, right before a bridge between all humanity and our creator was about to be created, do you know what Jesus did? He went alone. He took the disciples with him and then he said, hey, you sit here and pray, I'm gonna go over here. He separated himself even when they were right next to him. Why do we apologize? for feeling like we need time alone. And even more than that, why don't we value it? Why don't we value this time alone with God? In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he does nothing unless he sees his father do it. That time in seclusion, that time alone in prayer, that's where Jesus goes to the Father that's where Jesus seeks God. He is God, but he doesn't do anything even before communing with God. Jesus takes special time to go and be alone and to pray individually. And so first thing I wanna ask us, what busyness are you allowing to keep you from praying and listening? What apologies do you need to stop making so that you can get time alone and not feel bad about it? What changes do you need to make so that you can enter into private prayer? 
And what fear are you feeling even just in hearing those questions? Oh, but I gotta take care of this. Oh, but this person might need me. Oh, but if I tell them I can't go, then, then they might be so upset with me. I need to say yes to this because you don't know how disappointed that person's gonna be if I tell them no. Well, you know what? You're not gonna give people the best version of yourself if you're constantly filling all, the, all of your time. And you know what? If you're not spending time alone with God, then you're just giving people you instead of Jesus. And that's not helpful. When we say yes out of obligation, we're actually stopping other people from stepping into something they might be great at. Don't say yes out of obligation. Jesus took time away and you're allowed to do that too. In that last passage, when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he steps away and prays on his own, but there's also an instruction that he gives to the disciples who were with him, and that's our next point, which is to pray in community. He tells them to sit together and pray. And we know that they fall asleep if you read the rest of the gospel, but he gives them the instruction to pray in community. Praying in community is scary if you don't enjoy praying alone. Sometimes it's scary to pray out loud. There's different, there's different pieces of vulnerability that happen when you pray in community. But when those pieces of vulnerability all come together, it creates something that is so, so, so beautiful. In the early church, in this book of Acts that we're looking at, um, I started reading all kinds of things. It said, that, it said that they were devoted to prayer, so I thought, well, if they're devoted to prayer, then surely there's instances of prayer and community that I can find in here, right? So I started reading, and something just caught my attention that I had never, ever noticed before. It's one of those just one-line verses that it's so easy to read over. It's so easy to miss if you're not looking for it in there. And it's in chapter 12. So in Acts chapter 12, there's James, Jesus' brother, and he had just been murdered. He had just been killed. King Herod called for his death. And Peter is sitting in prison. And this is all taking place at the time of Passover, which mean that, means that there's tons of Jews in the city. And this is the point in time where we need to start drawing a distinction between Jews and Christians, because at this point, there are the committed Jews and then there are the committed Christ followers. So they are two different groups at this point. So let's read Acts chapter 12, starting in verse six. This says, the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrist. Then the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city and this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street and the angel suddenly left him. 
Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent an angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door. He knocked at the door in the gate and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be an angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. There's one little verse in there. Verse 12. It says, when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. There is a community of believers gathered for prayer. And then God sends an angel to protect Peter and break him out of jail. A little further context, King Herod of Agrippa was the grandson of King Herod who called for Jesus' death. His sister is the one who's responsible for the death of John the Baptist. He just ordered James, Jesus' brother, to be killed. And he was also known for persecuting Christians in order to appease the Jews and keep peace in the city. I think we can assume what was about to happen to Peter. It really doesn't look too good for him. So Peter's about to be killed, but there's a community of Christians gathered in prayer and their prayers are heard by God. And then when Peter goes to that home, people are so amazed that they don't even open the door. Could you imagine being so stunned? Like, oh my gosh, this sounds like Peter and just running away and, doing, and forgetting to even open the door. And Peter's just standing there like, hey, uh, can I come in? Like, there's people trying to kill me right now. Can you just open this gate for a second? And so can you imagine, like, how fervently he's knocking at the door and people are like, dude, you're crazy. And she's like, do you not hear this knocking? And then finally he gets in and starts telling the amazing stories while this community of people was gathered for prayer. See, when we pray, God hears us. And that's not just something that I'm telling you, that's something that is promised. How many of you are familiar with the verse, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11? How many people have heard that? Everybody's heard that. Somebody's probably got a coffee mug with it. I'm pretty sure I have a coffee mug with that on it because it's such a great verse. You probably either bought or received a graduation card that said, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good, not for disaster, plans for a future and a hope. It sounds so wonderful, right? It's so good. It's a great verse. But listen, when that verse came to be, when that verse was said, Israel was going through it. They were Babylonian captives. When they looked right and left, there was nothing that looked like home. Their people were being killed. Their women were being taken. 
Their families were being ripped apart and God looks on them and says, for I know the plans I have for you. Not plans for destruction, but plans for a future and a hope. That's the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. But what we've done all these years later, you know what we've done? We stopped reading. Does anybody know verse 12 and verse 13? It's even better. Verses 12 and 13 say, in those days when you pray, I will listen, seek for me wholeheartedly, and I will be found. That's a better promise. Listen, I want to know that you have plans for a future and a hope, but I'm a planner. So when you tell me that, I'm like, well, then let me know. What do I need to get in a row? What should I write on my planners? Where am I going on Tuesday? I have a calendar that has all the way to July 2020 written on it in my office. Like plans for a future and a hope. I'm like, yes, that's amazing. Tell me them. No, what's such a better promise is that I, the creator of the universe, the God who breathed and everything was made, the God who walked among you and lived a life to show you how to talk to me, hey, when you pray, I will listen. When you seek me wholeheartedly, I will be found. That's how much I care. That's what the early church knew. And so they knew when they were praying that God heard them. They knew when they were praying that God was listening. That's how we should pray in community. When we gather as a people on Sundays, when we gather in our parks throughout the week, we should pray confidently knowing that God cares and he's listening. He doesn't just have a plan that he's withholding. God wants to be found. He wants to be found found. He's just waiting for us to look. He's not hiding from us like a kid playing hide and seek. We're the ones hiding. Look for him and he will be found. The early church prayed in community and people were set free. What if we prayed like that? What if we honestly, really, and truly prayed like that? So what is keeping you from stepping into community to pray with people? Who in your life do you know that you can start praying with right now? And possibly the most important question of these, what keeps you from believing that God hears your prayer? What keeps you from believing and praying with the confidence that he is listening? There's one more, there's one more thing I want to get to today on what it means to be devoted to prayer. And this is to pray even when you don't have words. Even when you don't know what to say. Pray. In the book that's immediately following Acts, it's a book called Romans. It's written by a guy named Paul who used to persecute the Christians. And then he had a crazy encounter with Jesus and gave his life. And in Romans, he writes and he gives us tons of instructions. He addresses all kinds of doctrine of the church. He addresses all kinds of hefty issues. And one of the things that he speaks to is prayer. And it's one of my favorite verses. It's in chapter eight, starting in verse 26. Paul writes, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit 
prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit leads, pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. See, sometimes the honest truth is that we have no idea what to say. Sometimes life is so overwhelming or God feels so far away or we feel like we're just living in this fog and like we don't even know what's gonna happen within the next hour. And so how am I supposed to know what's, what to pray for if I'm so overwhelmed in this moment that I don't even have words to communicate with the person beside me? How am I supposed to communicate with God? Listen, that's a real feeling. I have felt that so many times in my life. I felt that this week. Sometimes we don't know what to say and we're exhausted and the thought of finding more words just sounds like too much to ask. But listen, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Prayer is not just words, it's a posture. It's not just words, it's a posture. <coughs> Sorry. Prayer is as much about listening as it is speaking. Prayer, prayer is something that is a physical connection. It's a physical connection with our spiritual being. And if you don't have any words, that is perfectly fine. That is perfectly, perfectly fine. Just close your eyes. Open your heart, tell God you love him, tell him you're stressed, and then just be quiet. We don't have to have big fancy words. We don't have to try and impress God. He's not someone that we need to lay down all our accomplishments in front of before he's willing to accept us. He's not someone who expects us to have done everything perfect even in the last five minutes. Close your eyes, open your heart. I actually open my hands a lot. When I, when I feel like I'm so overwhelmed and I don't know what to say, I don't pray with my hands clasped, I pray like this. Because there is nothing more vulnerable than hands wide open because hands wide open are not clinging to something. Hands that are wide open are not ready to fight. Hands that are wide open are saying, I'll just take whatever you have. Because whatever you have is better than whatever I got. Prayer is a posture, and sometimes it's okay to just be silent because the Holy Spirit, who knows our hearts, intercedes and it speaks on our behalf. And listen, if you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have never accepted him into your heart, made him Lord over your life, it's not a complicated thing. You can have this same connection to the Holy Spirit. You can have this same connection to your creator that any other person in this room has. There's not some big crazy formula. Also in Romans, it says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. And when you welcome him into your heart, when you welcome him into your life, when you surrender, you get all of that. All those promises are yours. 
When we look back at Jeremiah, it doesn't say, hey, get everything to good, and then I have a plan for you, and then I'll listen, and then I'll be found. He just says, come. And when we don't have the words, pray. Do it anyway. Because he hears and he understands. And so as we close today, my hope and my prayer for us is that we would be people who pray individually, who pray in community, and who pray even if we don't have the words. Because that's a life devoted to prayer. And that's a life that can set captives free.